Hello. Welcome to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast. I'm Rajan Khanna. Fantastic Fiction at KGB is a monthly reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month at the famous KGB bar in Manhattan's East Village. Fantastic Fiction is hosted by Ellen Datlow and Matthew Kressel and features up-and-comers and luminaries in the fields of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. The following audio was recorded live at the KGB bar, so please excuse the various background noises, bumps in the night, and other disturbances that you might hear. It's a live reading in New York City, and anything can and often does happen. And now, on to this month's reading. Hello, folks. Hello, folks. Okay, everybody, we're ready to get started. Hello, hello, hello. Hello. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Fantastic Fiction Reading Series at KGB. This is a monthly reading series that takes place on the third on the third Wednesday of every month here at the famous KGB bar. And I am here today because <laughs> I am. By the way, I am David Mercurio Rivera, and I'm here today because. Hi, David. Taking over. Yes, I am taking over. Matt Kressel is actually uh, preparing for his wedding, which is this weekend. So congratulations to Matt. So I'm co I'm co-hosting with uh, Hugo Award-winning editor Ellen Datlow. Congratulations, Ellen. That's her fourth or fifth. She doesn't. She's lost count. I'll count when we get home. So. So admission here is always free. We only ask that you drink, drink a plenty, to support the bar. So we appreciate that very much. Are there books available for sale here? Minus. Okay, Karen Euler's books Pushing are. Pushing her books. Yes. <laughs> Please come and buy the book. Yes. Definitely please buy the books. I'm going to let Ellen talk about upcoming readers. Very exciting news. But I'd like to introduce Karen Euler to you. Uh, Karen Euler's stories and novels have won an O. Henry Award, been shortlisted for The Bellwether, Shirley Jackson, Iowa Short Fiction Award, and others. Her latest novel, Glorious Plague, was published in April. Here's Karen. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here tonight. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to plug my new book for a couple of minutes, and then I'm going to read a short story. Um, my book, uh, published by Permuted Press, is called Glorious Plague, and it's about an absolutely wonderful apocalypse. I came across a reference to something called the NPV virus in insects a while ago. This virus causes insects to climb up to the top of the stalk, which for an insect is a bad decision. Uh, for the virus, however, getting bugs to the top of the stalk is great. Birds eat them, and the virus is distributed through droppings. Uh, in my book, this virus crosses over to people, and when it crosses over, it mostly ca causes them to climb to the highest place. Rooftops, treetops, signs, bridges, fire escapes, and sing. They are struck by glory and feel an overwhelming exaltation searching for the song that calls them to join. One character, Dale, manages to make it across the George Washington Bridge, which is clogged with stopped cars and people climbing the struts singing. 
She's looking for her daughter, Hallie, in a New York that swells with songs. And here's a page, I'm just going to read a page, about Hallie. The next morning, Hallie found that the day was glowing. The sky was luminous. It even pulsed sometimes with a kind of flash, like a sun flare, only it was a sky flare. And you didn't have to blink, you could look right at it. In fact, if you didn't look right at it, you became a little disoriented, as if your air wasn't quite right and your lungs skipped a beat. There was an undercurrent, a real current, a little buzz of electricity that ran along the ground and started seeping upwards. You wanted to lift along with it. It was the merest wind, the spirit of uplift. She could tell who felt it and who didn't. There, across the street, was a woman leaning out the window, her face upraised. She felt it. There, on the corner, waiting for a light, three people were singing. One of them even had a good voice. There was a child climbing up a lamppost. He felt it. There was a mother wheeling her child. She did not. There was a policeman in the middle of the street waving the traffic forward. He was beginning to feel it. His arms were raising up too often and confusing the flow. There were groups emerging from the crowds on the street. These groups felt the sun on the right side of their faces and they moved to the right. They saw a stairway and they took it. They came out of the subways as if they had reached heaven. Over in the park they were climbing on the rocks. A group was singing, your love is lifting me higher. On each repeated phrase of higher, another person joined in, pushing the group a step up the rock, compressing them. She watched their mouths move, saw their eyes raised. She could see people on the tops of the low buildings now. They were lined up with more lines behind them. And on top of one building, they were singing the Ave Maria. They brought a terrible passion to it, raising their arms on the most splendid notes. There was a camera van and a reporter, but the reporter was starting to sing. Hallie's heart was amazed at the sounds. She would love to sing. Each song appealed to her until she heard another song. She wavered at each group, wanting to blend with the sounds, to feel her heart ache upwards into joy. It wasn't overwhelming. It was pleasant and euphoric, a yearning mixed with anticipation, like a woman on her way to her lover. She listened to the songs with her head tilted, her eyes half closed. She had never felt such pleasure before, such goodwill. But the upshot was that she was late. She didn't really care about that. She went to the window to see the rooftops, and there, right across from her, were people standing together, faces up and singing. She could hear them through the closed windows. There were men and women and a few children. The children were raised in their parents' arms, looking upward. They were singing, Oh, Happy Day. As soon as they finished, they began again. Hallie looked and listened and thought that never, never had there been anything so mystical, so supreme, so complex and spiritual. How had the world gotten so good so suddenly? How had the spirit risen so high? How had God graced them so generously and exquisitely? Of course, then stuff happens. <laughs> Oh, no, 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 I meant... Oh, for no, Actually, we ha I just want to take a break. Uh, there are a bunch of chairs back here that you can... Okay, well, not a bunch. As long as you try to keep them out of the... Uh, the, uh, you know, the pathway. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, no, that break was a good break because you're switching to a totally different mood now. So I'm going to read a short story, and at the end I'm going to give a little, uh, explain a little of its genesis. Sometimes I don't know exactly where a story came from, but this one I do. Anyway, it's called The Stray Curse. This is the kind of thing that happens all the time, though not to everyone and not everywhere. Gina had long brown hair and brown eyes and smooth skin, and a mother she didn't see every day. She was grown and had her own world, and that was the way it should be. Gina's mother had left her mother, who had left her mother, a long string of mothers being left and knowing they had done it in turn and turn again. But all of a sudden, Gina felt a strange tug at her back. It began with an itch, then a bruise, then a feeling like there was a hook in her spine. She turned around to see what it was, and as, she, as soon as she turned, the pain went away. But when she shrugged and turned again, it came back fierce and strong. She couldn't move forward. It hurt her back. She turned around and took a step, then a hurried step. She was sure it was her mother pulling her home. She ran faster and faster the closer she got, flinging the door open when she reached her mother's house. Her mother wasn't there. She called out to her. No answer. She ran around the back to the woods. Her mother was the last house before the wilderness. And then down to the local pond where her mother liked to swim. She stood on the little dock the town had built. Her eyes traveled restlessly and she was about to turn back when she glanced down. There, below her, deep in the water, her mother reached an arm up. It didn't break through the surface. Her mother's lips were moving. Gina dropped to her knees and reached down as far as she could. Her fingertips touched her mother's wrist, but she couldn't grab hold and pull her up. She put her ear to the water. She could hear her mother distantly yelling, Gina, Gina, help me, Gina, help me. Grab my hand, she yelled back at her mother, but her mother couldn't. Gina decided to jump in, but strangely enough, she flattened out on the water and she couldn't reach down any further than she had before. She felt frantic. She couldn't understand why she couldn't reach her. You'll never get her that way, a voice said, startling her. She's cursed. She turned to the man who'd spoken. Cursed? Who would curse her? She's never hurt anyone or anything. The man, lounging on a lifeguard's chair tipped against a tree trunk, straightened up and shrugged. Well, does it matter? Do you want to find out who did it, or do you want to undo it? Two different tracks entirely. I want to free her, Gina cried. Well, okay, but you know how it is with curses. There's always a trick to getting them undone. He was a slight man with dirty hair and a dirty cap that once used to be blue. Can I trust you? Gina asked impulsively. He walked towards her. Of course you can. I'm a lifeguard. I know all about curses. I've even given out a few in my time. Before you ask, it wasn't me. I'm older than I look, and I'm much more cautious. In the past, I've regretted a few things I've done, so I don't do them as quickly as I used to. He smiled faintly. It made Gina feel a little sure, that smile. Then what should I do to release her? At that, he frowned, as if he'd suddenly thought of an obstacle. It isn't all that easy, he said. Curses are meant to stay. Of course, he added thoughtfully, all curses are a series of trades. There's always a little crack. 
What's the crack, she demanded. Hard for me to know. I'm not active anymore. He closed his eyes dramatically and took a deep breath and opened them again. You need advice from someone with more connections. The school nurse comes across the young and the emerging, and they're more likely to be the ones to let a stray curse go in case it is a stray curse. Yes, go to the school nurse. I think that should do it. But I can't leave her here, she cried. Of course not. He handed her a jar. When she glanced at it, she saw her mother deep in the murky waters of the jar. Why can't I just tip it over? Why is she so small? She's the same size. The water's the same size. The problem's the same size. I just changed the perspective, of course. Gina put the jar up to her eyes. She could faintly hear her mother yelling, help me, Gina. Go ahead, the man said, and Gina reached her fingers in through the top of the jar and found that her hand was tiny, and there was the same old problem. Her mother was beneath the water calling for help, and Gina couldn't reach her. She pulled her hand up. What can I do? You have to take her with you to the school nurse. She's very wise. But I have to warn you, she'll make a hard bargain. Harder than mine, at least. You're bargaining something? I'm making it possible to take your mother with you. Without that, you might lose track of her completely. Don't you think that's valuable? Of course, of course, Gina said hastily. For that, I only ask for your toes. He looked modestly away. Gina was struck with a sudden bolt of terror. Why would you want my toes? What a terrible thing to ask for. I could have asked for a lung. Surely you see how reasonable I am? <laughs> I hope you won't insult me by refusing. I'd have to take my gift back. He reached for the jar, which Gina hastily hid behind her back. All right, she said, and closed her eyes for an instant as a quick, piercing pain hit both her feet, and when she opened her eyes, her toes were gone, and so was the man. She did little hops for a short distance until she learned how to walk without toes. Really, it was a waddle of sort, flat-footed of a sort, and as she got used to it, she got better at it. Her feet slid around in her shoes now, since the shoes were clearly too big without toes to fill them. She stopped and tore her sleeves off and wadded them into the toes of her shoes. There was no blood. The school nurse was sitting at her, at her desk, filling in forms. She looked up at Gina's knock. Her eyes slid from Gina's face to the jar Gina held. What's that? The nurse asked with interest. Someone has cursed her, Gina said. It's my mother. I can't reach her now. My hands won't reach her. She unscrewed the lid and reached in to show how impossible it was to actually connect with her mother's hands. She could hear her mother faintly yelling. Well, all mothers leave, the nurse said, in one way or another. Isn't that so? She's yelling for help, Gina pointed out. The nurse sighed. I'm here to give help, it's true. But your mother's obviously been cursed. And there's no conventional cure for a curse, especially an unconventional curse. She jiggled the jar, stuck her thumb quickly on her tongue, and made motions as if she were paging through a manual in the air. Yes, she said finally, this is a tough one to cure. Whoever did this curse, the diminishing curse, it's hard to counter. It's very strong. It requires sacrifice. I already gave my toes, Gina whispered. The nurse was surprised. Why would you do that? Look at her toes. The lifeguard required them. Oh, he's a fetishist, that's all. He'll probably carry them in his mouth for a month and then spit them out. I never can understand people like him asking trades for nothing. Well, when you ask something, you risk something. She looked at Gina. 
What am I risking, Gina asked quickly, to get my mother back? You may not get what you request. You may get more than you request. You may get something other than what you request, or you may get nothing at all. But nothing changes without a choice. Gina peered at the jar in which her mother faintly sank. What will you require from me? I need a strip of your skin, she said. How much skin is that? <laughs> Why, all of it, the nurse said, surprised. One continuous strip of all your skin, starting under your right armpit and going up and down until it's as long as a river. That's the sympathetic part of it, the river and the water your mother is in. It's a way to reach her. You hang the skin into the jar, and your mother will grab onto it and be pulled to the top. Gina was aghast. But my skin! <laughs> What will I do without my skin? And do you give it back to me once we get my mother out? Oh, no, of course not. Magic doesn't work on lending things. It works on giving things. I'll keep it, of course, because I use the skin for medicinal purposes. Here she opened the bottom filing drawer, and Gina could see bundles of tightly wrapped skin, like rolls of cellophane, in Ziploc bags. I'll give you an ointment, of course, the nurse concluded. It will only sting at first. And it stung terribly and seemed to go on for a terribly long time. But eventually the nurse had the whole roll of skin gathered up and she put a drop of ointment under Gina's chin. It seemed to cover her body immediately. And indeed, the sting went away, although there was a residual sense of stickiness, whether from the ointment or from the missing layer of skin, Gina could not tell. She tried not to look at her skinless hand, red and white in an unpleasant sort of way, as she picked up her mother's jar and unscrewed the lid. The skin, she whispered, and the nurse obliged, handing it to her rolled up as a ball of yarn. Gina unrolled it slowly and lovingly. This was herself, a strange sensation, her former self, her armor against the world, the border between her and it. She put the jar on the desk and unrolled her skin so that it tipped into the jar, dipping slowly, very slowly, into her mother's world. She had to squint to see her skin once it hit the perspective of the jar, being very thin and barely visible. But she lowered it and saw it curl along the top of the water. It didn't have enough weight to actually dip in. She raised it up and out. What can I put on it to make it go into the water, she whispered. Put it into your mouth and wet it with your tongue, the nurse said. Nothing would get a, a mother hooked more than the kiss from a daughter. Trust me, she'll go for it. Gina took her own skin, the very tip of it, and put it on her tongue. It felt fragile and thin, exactly as expected. She moistened it with her saliva, and then she took it out and kissed it. That will work, the nurse promised, but it didn't. Her mother reached for it. Gina would swear to that, but she couldn't reach far enough. Instead, bubbles rose from her mouth to the surface. Inside each bubble, Gina was sure, were her mother's cries. Help me, Gina, help me. She lifted up the skin and lowered it again. Five times, down and up, pause, down and up. The nurse cheered her on. You're almost there, she said. This time will work. Finally, Gina gave up. She lowered her head. Her mind was almost numb. Her body throbbed and her heart was sore. Oh well, the nurse said, we took a chance. <laughs> Gina raised her head. What chance did you take, she asked. <laughs> the nurse flushed. I lose, too, when the healing doesn't work, but I feel I owe you something, or it's just that I have a good heart. I have a lifetime spent in undoing things like this. If I 
can't get you to reach her, then the spell is particularly strong. I can give you a referral. She stepped, stepped over to her desk, leaning down to a small cylinder, which she spun quickly. Ah, uh, here it is. Dr. Ramona, transplants. Transplants, Gina said weakly. Well, of course, your mother doesn't have the will to reach your hand. We must transplant some into her. That's obvious. She nodded vigorously to herself, handing the card to Gina, who took up the salve, her mother's jar, and the card, and walked carefully out the door. Luckily, Dr. Ramona was nearby, behind a mall with sails on lots of glittery things. There was no one in the waiting room, which concerned Gina, but she felt resigned to it. No one could help her. What did it matter? She was ushered into an exam room. What is it, the doctor asked. She wore a short white cotton jacket over her clothes. Her name was sewn onto her pocket. Gina held her mother out to her. The doctor took the jar, squinting, considering. She took her time. She tapped the jar. She tipped it. She unscrewed the lid and stuck a wooden tongue depressor into it. She listened with her stethoscope. I've seen this once before, she said finally. And what happened? The doctor drew her lips in tightly. I'm sorry, she said. This is not a deliberate curse. It's a random one. The person who did this isn't even aware. That makes it harder to counter it. In essence, there's nothing to counter. No animosity, no anger, no feelings at all. There was no intent. It just happened, a stray curse. Gina sat there. It was so quiet that the faint ring of her mother's cries could be heard even from as far away as within the jar. My mother is calling for help, Gina whispered. Yes, the doctor said, I would too. <laughs> even that simple agreement cheered Gina. The doctor understood. What about a transplant? The nurse said something about a transplant. The minutes ticked as the doctor was silent. She pursed her lips, she loosened them, her eyes roamed, her eyes came back, she lifted her hand, she put it down. There might be some hope there, she agreed quietly, some small hope, but it's such a risk, and there's so much to lose. I think she's lost just about everything already, Gina argued. I didn't mean for her. There's not much left for her to lose. I meant for you. Sometimes a curse is stronger because the victim has no will to survive, a kind of compromised immune system, if you will, immunity being the desire to live. We could take yours and give it to her, but you see the danger, don't you? If we take yours away? Gina saw it, definitely. If she gave her own desire to live to her mother, then what would be left for her? It was a sickening prospect, really. She wanted her own life, certainly. Was that selfish and cruel? Her eyes strayed to the drawer with her mother in it, which the doctor had set down on the table. The doctor waited intently. What success rate? Gina whispered. Very small. Then why do it? Why take the chance? I wouldn't advise it myself. I wouldn't do it myself. We don't really understand curses like this. Impersonal, indifferent, lacking passion. They can't be broken easily because we don't know what was offered to make the curse, so we can't offer more. It's irrational. That's the problem. When you have an irrational curse, there's very little hope. She waited to see if Gina would say anything. The ones who survived may have survived accidentally. Gina's eyes were on the jar. She's suffering. She is, but we have no proof that she knows she's suffering. That part of her may be gone. At least we can hope so. Gina took her mother's jar. She walked down the long street back to her mother's house. She walked slowly because she didn't have her toes to take some of the burden off her feet. She held the jar in her hands 
but the jar often slipped because there was no skin to keep her body fluids from seeping out. Her body was weeping. She tipped the jar every which way, but no matter what position it was in, her mother was still below the water, still reaching up, still calling faintly. Her mother's house was the last house before the wilderness. It was a thing her mother often spoke about, the wilderness, though there was nothing in particular Gina could recall about it, not her mother's wishes concerning it, not whether it was frightening or soothing. It was just a thing her mother mentioned now and then, the wilderness. Gina stood at its edge. She was silent and listened for a long, long time. She didn't know if her mother could hear her. Her mother hadn't answered her so far, and it seemed she couldn't change what she was saying. Forever and ever, she could call out, help me, Gina, and forever and ever, Gina would not. Before the sunset, when the birds took their last song, Gina raised her arm and flung the jar as far as she could into the wilderness, so far that she would be unable to find it, so far that she couldn't hear it, so far that only another jar, flung exactly the same way, would land next to it and add its own unrelenting cry. She would leave instructions for her own daughter, if it should happen to her. Fling my jar high and far and long, she imagined herself writing as she turned to walk down the road to her own house. Let me go. the last story in a collection of mine called Forgetting, which came out of uh, watching my mother turn insane with dementia. Th uh, the last months of her life were spent yelling for help, um, as she believed she was in prison and detention in fake hospitals on planes that couldn't land, trains that were lost. Um, but this story is also about wanting something desperately and being unable to get it no matter how hard you try. The other side of wishing is losing. Thank you. We're going to take a 10-minute break, have some drinks, enjoy yourself, go to the bathroom, and come back. Bye. <laughs> Shh, we're about to start the second half of the infamous KGB reading series, which David has kindly explained. I should have gone first and introduced David, I, but hey, what the heck. You know. Have you ever done it before? Oh, you have? Yeah. In my absence. So. This is the first time I think Matt's been absent, and he has a really good reason. Um, I think he's starting to freak out that maybe he didn't have the, you know, the time or whatever to do this. No, no. <laughs> right. <laughs> the opposite. So anyway, <laughs> some of our forthcoming readers are, in the next few months, are um, September 17th, Leanna Renee Heber. Mary Robinette Cole. In October, October 15th, we have E. Lily Yu and Genevieve Valentine, who is here in the back sometimes. In Nove November 19th, we have Nancy Cress and Jack Skillinstead. Um, we, in future months after that, we have Rajan Khanna, um, Andy Duncan, Gregory Frost, Mike Allen and Ben Lurie. Lisa Minetti and Caitlin R. Kiernan, probably her last appearance in the, in the, in the uh, east, uh, northeast because she's moving back to, I think Atlanta, I'm not sure where, but south. <laughs> so, um, oh, Ken Liu, um, Simon Stronsis, and David Edison, and you know, that's what we've got lined up in the next several months, or who we have lined up. 
Yeah, the raw rib next month. And we're actually, we are actually thinking of having a special reading, but I'm not sure when it would be. Um, someone had, I, I forget who suggested it, but it was a really good idea. Matt and I both agreed that we'd like to do maybe um, a clarion reading somehow, combining some recent grads of clarion, oops, clarion West and, and San Diego. Um, but I don't know when, what? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but we have it on a regular day. <laughs> but I don't know when. Who's waving? Is that Charlie Jane? What? What are you doing here? Hello, come in. I see someone who doesn't live here who's probably on her way back from Lone Con. Okay, anyway, all right. Our next reader is Veronica Shanus, whose work has been finalist for the Nebula and Shirley Jackson Awards and her first... And she just... Wait, she won the Shirley Jackson Awards. Yeah, I think I must have written that. <laughs> Yeah. For her fabulous novella, for her fabulous novella *Burning Girls*, which Lois Tilton hated, and I'm so happy that it's been nominated for everything. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Well, anyway, and this, this is by the way, we're now doing audio of this, or we will be. It hasn't gone up yet, but we're gonna, the last four months have been recorded, and we have our permissions from set from our various readers. So. Eventually, they're going to go up as soon as actually as soon as Matt comes back from his wedding, probably. So edit out the <laughs> <laughs> I don't give a shit. No. <laughs> no. Well, maybe we will edit out. And no, we're just going to have the intros and the outros. Yeah, this is part. Of, we will edit. Actually, it will be edited. I think. <clears throat> yes. I mean, then I'll never get a decent review out of Lois or anything. Okay. Sorry. Anyway, um, her first book. Her first book. We're back to Veronica. An academic monograph on feminist revisions of fairy tales was released this summer. She is associate professor in the Department of English at Queens College, CUNY. Her next story is forthcoming in Ellen Dallas, The Dawn Collection. Please welcome Veronica. Thank you. Ellen, may I borrow your watch? Because I seem to have left mine at home. It doesn't have a second hand. I don't care about that. As long as it has you know, a minute hand, I can keep track of how long I've been going on for. You can get the book. All right. That's very comforting. <laughs> My mother is here. She's lovely. She would not require my toes or my skin, and she would definitely come back for my kiss. I, 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 I just want to make sure she knows everything's OK. Um, so the past few pieces I've published have been quite political in nature. And it seems, wouldn't this be a wonderful time for me to read a political story because of everything that's been happening in Missouri, every horrifying thing that's been happening in Missouri. Um, but I have no more, I, I didn't have a political story ready to go, certainly not one that was applicable. So um, this is just my acknowledgment of horrible things happening in Missouri that uh, I hope everyone is paying attention to. Now pay attention to my story, which is not political, um, but is in fact about despair and deeply inspired by my horrific adolescence. It also doesn't have a title. If you want to think of a good title, you can tell it to me. Afterward. Afterward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't just shout it out. Well, they can after you read. Not while I'm reading. No. All right. I remember when the very air pulsed with music, raucous shouts and double time beats mixing with the eerie wailing of tortured guitars and pipes. We were all of us young and wild. My brothers and I wore tight black jeans and ripped t-shirts and we stood around looking tough and combing our hair until it was slicked back just right to show off our sideburns. 
The girls all wore short skirts and strong boots, ripped fishnet stockings, ending inches below their hemlines. We actually all wore boots, come to that, engineering boots or motorcycle boots or combat boots or Doc Martens, as, as though we had to be ready for some kind of forced march. And we all may have been under a curse, but I remember us always laughing. The air was gray with smoke and our heads spun, not a full glass, but we emptied it, not a pill, but we popped it, not a leaf, but we smoked it, and we laughed even when we were on our knees. The air was drenched with beer and whiskey, and we danced those boots so thin you could feel the floor through our socks. We were all young, I said, but of course my brothers and I couldn't age. We were bound, and that kept the 12 of us from growing any older, no matter how much time passed. We couldn't set foot outside the club, but inside we couldn't grow old, and we couldn't die. We tried. Bands appeared and disappeared, DJs spun in and out, and we were always there, always game for anything, hopped up on speed and lack of sleep, dancing our boots thin and shouting our voices hoarse. We'd been there for years before we found the girls, or before the girls found us. I remember the rest of it too. I remember waking up wanting to die. I remember the hacking coughs, the bleak despair driving me, driving us to drown ourselves in the neon darkness, the impossible wish to see sunshine just once more, the imprisonment. But when I look back, everything glows with false freedom, and I remember us always laughing. But the music never stopped even when your head was screaming, when the beats that had blasted you off your feet drilled behind your eyes and it felt like your head would break open from pain. And the air never cleared and the smoke that had sustained us and cushioned us like amniotic fluid turned harsh, bitter and sticky like tar with sharp teeth, extending tendrils to wrap around our limbs and keep us moving but stop us escaping. And the dancing which had transported us became a cage of knives, spitting electrodes forcing us to move even when our very bones were splintering in agony. Every morning I woke up shaking. My vision blurred and doubled. I was begging Cynthia for a drink before my eyes were even fully open, but she stood behind the bar with her arms folded, black hair tightly braided back and shook her head. You know how it works, she would say. Even picking my head up off the bar made my guts flip over. I'd forgotten what it felt like to sleep in a bed by then, to wake up without pain and nausea. Staggering a little, I would wake up my brothers, and we all woke up like that. Black eyes, broken jaws, teeth missing, nausea, spitting blood. I woke up shattered, like all the rest, but I was oldest. I had always been the oldest, the one in charge, the one who looks after his brothers, cleans them up, gets them out of trouble, gets them in trouble. So I would get to my feet somehow and go to wake up my brothers. My hands shook, my whole body trembled, and I could feel blood trickling out my ears, my ribs cracking and shattering every time I tried to draw a breath. We were all like that every morning, and we'd all heal by nightfall. So I'd go to wake my brothers, and for me, that was the worst of it. My ninth brother, who's always been an asshole, always woke up spitting with rage, calling me names and blaming me for all our troubles, which was fair enough, I suppose. And my 12th brother, my youngest brother, just wept silently at every waking, tears running down his face like rain against a window. At least one of us would wake up choking on vomit. Sometimes it was me. We had to wash the place down, and the bar was like us. No matter how well we'd scrubbed the toilets, the bar, the floor, the basement. By the morning, they'd be covered in puke and grime and shit again. 
and with joints cracking, doubled over and hunched up like old men, we just shine it all up again. We had to take care of that hellhole like it was our baby. And afterwards, if we'd done it well enough, Cynthia would order us some food from the diner down the street. Never enough, though. And that was all we got to eat. And I remember always being hungry and dirty. There was a small sink in the men's room where I rinsed out my shirt every so often and tried to splash myself clean. But there wasn't much in the way of soap. You've been to bars, men's rooms. And I lived in a cocoon of sweat and bile and dried blood. My youngest brother, I had to make sure he didn't get a hold of my pocket knife. He'd cut himself if he did. Maybe he still does. I don't know anymore. And the cuts wouldn't heal up by evening. He's got scars up and down his arms and legs. One of the cuts got infected this one time, and he ran a fever like I'd never seen before. I begged Cynthia to bring in a doctor, promised her I'd do anything. But as she pointed out, it wasn't like I had anything to bargain with. Eventually, she tossed me some antibiotics she had left over from something, but the fever had singed his brain, and he hasn't been the same since, and none of this is his fault. He was young. He just fell in with the wrong crowd. Us. Even when he didn't have my knife, I'd have to keep an eye on him. Sometimes he swiped the knife Cynthia used to cut up lemons and limes. My sixth brother killed himself once. I found him hanging from the light fixture in the men's room by his belt, and he was stone dead. <laughs> I remember how heavy his body was when I brought it down, how mottled his face was, his tongue lolling obscenely out of his mouth. And I remember him waking up the next morning, whimpering like a poppy with purple bruises around his throat. He's held his neck funny ever since. My ninth brother, that asshole, he just beats the wall when it gets to be too much for him. It fucks up his knuckles and leaves blood smears on the walls that we have to scrub off again. But I don't think he's thinking about that when he does it. I think he likes the pain. I drink. We had plenty of money when we first got here, and I drank it all away. By myself, of course, but we ran out a long time ago, and Cynthia will only pour out for us now if she feels like it during the daytime. I, I can't tell what she's going to do. I see myself in the mirror, and I can tell the alcohol is wrecking me, but that's better than the alternative, I think. I feel the liquor corroding my body from the inside breaking me down into dust and poison, or maybe just releasing the poison that had been there all along. And my hands still shake if I don't concentrate on keeping them still. Those were the days. But the nights were something else entirely. The girls were obviously slumming, but then so were we. Or we had been at first, pretty boys down from the big house to mix it up with the squatters. And now we have the broken noses and rotten teeth but we hadn't started out like that. I carried a switchblade, but I'd never pulled it. I don't think I knew how to open it when I first came here. Anyway, the girls were clearly coming down from Daddy's house to rock out with the real punks, and 12 of them with ratted hair and liquid black eyeliner making cat's eyes an inch long, black leather bustiers and Doc Martens. They might have been meant for us. And I, can, I could swear, I could swear I had a tissue around here somewhere. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I could swear I could see our salvation in their eyes. We all could, I think. But we were cool. We played it cool. Thank you. Leaning up against the bar and downing beer and eyeing the girls when they weren't looking while they were still blinking in the dark, trying to get their bearings among the pounding beats and flaring matches. The oldest made her way to the bar where I was waiting for her. Maybe she'd seen me looking her over after all. I sauntered over a few steps and met her. Buy you a drink, I asked. 
no, that's not right. The music was shaking the floor, glasses were rattling behind the bar, and I leaned over to her and half shouted, half mouthed, buy you a drink? Close enough to her ear that she could feel my breath on her face. My breath smelled, I am sure, of smoke and beer and late nights and rotten hope and self-destruction. She cut her eyes at me and her eyelids glittered with caked on silver eyeshadow. I wanted to bend her over backwards in a movie kiss right then and there, but I kept my hands to myself because I've learned something. And I took a drag off my cigarette instead while sonic fireworks exploded all around us. I could see my brothers gravitating toward the other girls. Then she smiled and shouted, why not, at me, and mouthed, cider. I don't drink cider anymore. I drink pims because I'm grown up and elegant now. <laughs> I put my arm around her waist and she let me and got her a cider. We never had to pay, not at night, because we were paying every day. And I gave her a cigarette and lit it for her. She coughed and pretended it wasn't her first. I remembered my first cigarette, how I hadn't coughed at all, but it sucked the coarse, harsh smoke straight down into my heart where it wrapped around that beating machine like a protective cocoon. It's still there, but it's been getting thinner, no matter how much smoke I forced down my throat. She stood with her hip pressed up against me. What do you want? She shouted in my ear. Dance? I shouted back. She drained her glass and slammed it down on the bar. The music was so loud that I couldn't hear it hit. Her face lit up, flushed with drink and heat. Let's go then. She grabbed my hand and together we pushed and shoved our way to the middle of the seething mass of people, my brothers, her sisters, and we became the center of the storm and the lightning struck and we danced. We danced the band dry and the DJ sore and still we moved like machine gun fire, like the St. Valentine's Day massacre. And I knew that this was it. She and her sisters were the ones. We danced the sun up, not that we could see the sun through the tattered walls. Now, we were lit by neon and dim incandescence and the flares of cardboard matches, but the space emptied out and the music faded until finally we could hear each other speak and there were holes worn through the bottom of our boots. Where do you live? She asked me as we leaned against the bar sharing a bottle of whiskey. I gestured around the room a little unsteadily. My socks were damp with sweat and something nasty from the floor. Here, I said. We all live here. You even got anywhere you could take me? I can't even leave, I said. She took a pull off the bottle. Why not? So I ground out my cigarette and told her. My brothers and me, back when we were really young, not trapped in youth, but genuinely new, we heard the beats from the black discs is back when there were black discs and vinyl grooves. It went before the music started. And they pulled each of us by the balls. We knew we had to come here, that here was where our life should be, in the dark and in the noise. So we got the gear first, went down to Trash and Vaudeville with ready cash and remade ourselves. And as Lester Bangs says, if rock and roll isn't for remaking yourself, what is it for? We swaggered in here like young Turks, chains clinking against our legs, our hair combed just right, and we tore up the dance floor, and we knocked back shots of tequila, and we hassled all the girls. We were real assholes, actually, spoiling for a fight. We didn't get one. We just got Cynthia smiling so sweetly at us that I thought maybe I had a shot with her, and looking meaningfully at the other denizens of the bar until they backed away. 
and feeding us buybacks until four in the morning. And as she was closing up, she asked us if we were enjoying ourselves. And we were. I doubt anybody else had been enjoying themselves, particularly the girls there, because like I said, we were assholes, but we were. And when I said yes, she asked if she could count on us being back. And I said, we don't ever want to leave. Have you no homes to go to? She said. We didn't move. We just sat there drinking and, j drinking and jostling each other. I want to close up, she said. Last chance? But we didn't leave. And when I woke up that first morning and saw her behind the bar setting up for the night, I just thought I'd passed out and she'd left me there. But when I tried to leave, as soon as I tried to set foot outside the door, I curled up in agony. The air felt like knife blades skinning me alive. The streetlight seemed to pour molten metal down on my skin, and the ground, the ground seemed to swarm up around me like a mountain of stinging beetles. Every inch of my body blistered and burned. I crawled back into the bar on my hands and knees, gulping the stinking air. I couldn't feel anything but pain and rage. So I woke up my brothers. And when my ninth brother realized what had happened to us, he actually went for Cynthia and she broke his collarbone with the Louisville slugger she keeps behind the bar. <laughs> he fell down and she stood over him. She seemed to tower over us all, really, and said, don't fuck with me, boy. Not in my bar. Cynthia's always here, and I don't think she sleeps. <laughs> all the time I told this girl our story, she drank our whiskey and nodded in all the right places. How long has it been, she asked. I don't know, years? Things don't change here. People come and go, and we don't change, except the circles under my eyes, they get darker. Yeah, she said. I actually noticed that about you. <laughs> she put her hand on my thigh, leaned over, and kissed me. I put my arms around her, but she broke it off and pulled away. And she put the whiskey bottle in my hand and slid off the bar stool, her purple miniskirt riding up to the very bottom of her ass. She tugged it back into place. I'll see you, she said. <laughs> you coming back tomorrow night, I asked, as her sisters began filing out. I tried to keep the desperation out of my voice. She grinned. Her dark lipstick was all smeared from our kiss, and her black eyeliner cat's eyes were long gone, sweated off. The rips in her stockings had gotten bigger. Yeah, we'll be back. And the night after that, could be, she said, you never know. Wait, I said, you know all about me now. I'm Jake. What's your name? Isabel, she said. What's your story? I don't have one yet, she said. Come on, I persisted. What brings you here? She grinned again, but this time it looked a lot more brittle. Nothing, she shrugged. Anything you want from outside? Cigarettes, I said. I'd kill for a pack of cigarettes and a clean t-shirt. Okay, she smiled at me and then she walked out. The door slammed and bolted, locking my brothers and me in for the day. Our first few weeks in there, we'd torn the place apart every night, wrenched the stools apart and used them to smash up the bottles and the mirror behind the door bar. But the club just rebuilt itself around us. It didn't heal completely. The mirror is still shattered like a mosaic and the walls are charred in places actually. But it um, doesn't look much different from the rundown punk dive it had been when we first walked in. Cuts on our fists took a lot longer to heal. My brothers and I settled in for the day after that first night, contorting ourselves on benches and against walls. 
It's gonna happen, I said happily. I don't like them, my youngest brother said. What do you mean you don't like them? I asked. There are girls, let's who are gonna set us free. You can't not like them. The one I was dancing with was boring, he said. Mine didn't like it here, you could tell, said my fifth brother. We wanna get out of here, don't we? I said reasonably. You're just cheery because you and your girl were practically fucking on the dance floor, snarled my ninth brother. Look, guys, I said, there are 12 of them and 12 of us, and they're the ones who go to sleep. My ninth brother was right about one thing. I was deliriously happy. I hadn't felt that way since. They came back the next night and the night after that, and I danced with her all night till our boots were worn through and our heads were caved in with the beats, and we drank so much that when we fell, we bounced. And when we got hurt, we roared with laughter instead of pain. We were wrecks, me trying to shuck what was left of the bullying asshole I had been and her running from whatever was driving her, two drunken dancing banshees, 24 really, counting all of us, at first, she brought me a carton of cigarettes every night, which I shared out among my brothers, and she told me about the weather, which I liked. You miss weather. The bar was cold in the winter and hot in the summer. I'd almost forgotten about the beating sun and gray pinpricks of rain. She told me about her calculus class, which made me feel stupid, but I didn't really care. She smelled like parks and asphalt and street fairs and all the outside that I missed. Sometimes she came in morose and rageful. She wouldn't talk and she wouldn't smile and all she would do is knock back shots of bourbon and dance. By the end of the night, I was usually holding her hair out of her face while she vomited into the toilet. But I didn't mind, I was falling in love. I think she was just falling. She'd do that for a few nights in a row and then come in back to normal, chirping about her cousin's new baby and showing me pictures. I couldn't remember the last time I'd seen a baby. We both had our hands full taking care of the others. I'd laid down the law to my brothers. No bitching about the girls to me. I didn't want to hear it. But they didn't get along with them any better, and it was just as clear that the girls didn't like my brothers. Isabel was the only one who bothered to dress up. The others slouched around in jeans and t-shirts, which was fair enough, because that's what we were wearing. My ninth brother pissed off one sister so much that she threw a drink at him. I shoved him up against the cracked wall of the bar. What the fuck did you do? I shouted at him. Go fuck yourself, he spat at me. I banged his head against the wall again. I swear to God, Max, if you fuck this up, what, he shouted, I'll get the shit kicked out of me? Well, that happens every fucking morning. We stared at each other for a couple of minutes, and finally I turned away. Just don't, Max, I said. Isabel had been talking her sister down. Please don't go. I heard her say, well, don't go. Tomorrow will be better. I promise. I'll take care of it. The next night, Isabel brought in a bag of weed and some rolling papers. I think this might help, she told me. And it did. It helped Max, anyway, who stopped pummeling the walls if we saved enough for him to smoke up during the days. Every night after that, she brought in something. I didn't know where she got the drugs or the money for them, but she was able to hold them over all of us to enforce good behavior. Sometimes I think the only things that united her sisters and my brothers were the desire for the drugs and their resentment of the two of us. But we took care of them. We kept them in line. There was nobody to keep us in line. A couple weeks after I first met her, she pulled me into the bar's back room, pressed me into one of the darker corners, and kissed me. My arms went around her, and I found the gap between her t-shirt and her purple skirt. I still have that skirt, it occurs to me. It's hanging in my closet. Better not stop dancing, I whispered to her, and she nodded. But she tasted like cider and cigarettes and sweat. 
So I kissed her again and ran my hand down the side of her breast. I knew another dance, she whispered back, and slid her hands into the back pockets of my jeans. We'd ended up in a heap on, in a, at the foot of the wall, and I held her half on, half off my lap. I didn't care if we'd to start the 101 nights over, honestly. I leaned over and kissed her hair. I love you, I told her. You need me, she corrected pretty bleakly. No, I said, I love you. You barely know me, she replied. How am I on time? I have your watch. Okay. All right. <laughs> All right, so I have some time. So we danced. Okay, so we danced and screwed our way. Give me five more minutes through a hundred nights. My brothers and I never knew where the girls went during the days, and we never found out where they lived. At night, they lived with us amid the smoky, alcoholic squalor of the bar. My T-shirt and her fishnets were in shreds and tatters, but our boots miraculously healed each day while we slept, curled up in the same dark corners we crowded so frantically into during the night. Sometimes I would have sworn that I could still smell her hair in my sleep. The hundredth night, Isabel came in in one of her poison moods. She wouldn't look at me, wouldn't talk to me no matter what I did or said. By the end of the night, my nerves were spitting wires. I never knew what to do with her when she was like this. Nothing worked, nothing felt right, and I was tense, straining for that 101st night. It was all I could see. I tried to talk to her, but her averted eyes and monosyllabic answers reduced me to silence as well. At the end of the night, I stared moodily into space while she knocked back shots of bourbon. My tension and mounting excitement curdled into frustration and I began to seethe. When she paid for her fifth shot, I finally spoke. You can't handle that much and you know it, I said. She shrugged half-heartedly. Fuck you, Jake, she said, but without any real malice behind it. No feeling at all, really, not love or anger. Seriously, Isabel, stop drinking. You'll just wind up puking it all back up. So, who the fuck are you, my mother? Not your mother, I said. I'm the person who cleans you up afterwards, remember? My voice turned ugly, and I knew it would be a mistake to keep talking. But I was so aching with tension for the next night, and her mood had turned that tension sour. I guess I thought a fight might be the next best thing to fucking, which she certainly wasn't in the mood for. Me, not your sisters. I kept, go I kept going, trying to goad her into paying attention. Your sisters, they don't give a shit. They leave you here as soon as the music's done. It worked. Her head snapped around. Don't you say one word about my sisters? You're sick of cleaning me up? What have I been doing since I got here but cleaning up after your mess? You think it's easy getting my sisters here every night? They practically hate your brothers. You think I want to be here when I feel like this? Actually, I'd never thought about that, what Isabel's black moods would be like from the inside. I guess I just thought of them as part of her mystique. Where did she come from? How did she feel? Uh... <laughs> she was here for me. That had been enough. For me, anyway. But for her? Then why do you bother to come? I snarled at her to cover up the shame beginning to slink through my guts. She stared at me for a minute and turned back to her drink. You're an asshole. She drank down the fifth shot of whiskey and blinked a little in the low light. And for the first time, I noticed dark circles under her eyes. I come here, she began, and then stopped. I come here, she said again with some difficulty because it's the only time I really feel alive. It's the only time I feel like I want to be alive. I can't stop sleeping, Jake. I sleep 12 or 15 hours a day. Most days showering is too hard. My arms and legs feel like they're filled with lead. I, I feel like I'm not really there most of the time. 
not really there at all, just looking through the cutout eyes of a portrait, like in a bad movie. Everything hurts all the time, even when there's nothing wrong with me. I cry every day. I can't keep my mind together. My thoughts bounce and clatter like marbles over a floor. Everything looks gray to me, like there's smoke in front of my eyes all the time. And when I come here, Jake, I'm not useless. I come here because sometimes when I'm here, the music and the smoke and the drink drives all that away and I feel okay, just okay. And that's a fucking miracle. And sometimes I feel better than that. Sometimes I feel bubbles like champagne in my blood and I can see neon light trails in the air and everything just sparks like burning metal and fireworks. But most of the time, most of the time, Jake, I feel like crap. I didn't know what to say to her. I drank her sixth shot of whiskey. I didn't know, I said I never knew. It always seemed so uh, alive. She looked at me bitterly until I heard exactly how stupid I sounded. Yeah, I'm good at that, and I'm good at calculus, so nothing really bad could be happening, could it? You never noticed, you never took it seriously, because you needed me to be the girl who would save you, and you don't love me, and you don't know me, and you never once thought about what I needed, or even noticed me counting ceiling tiles while you were fucking me. That's mean, I breathed. That's mean, and it's not true. I did think about what you need. I asked, oh, shut up, Jake, she said, and slid off the bar stool. I'm going to go throw up, and I'll hold my own fucking hair back, and then I am leaving. I think we'll just leave it there. You don't know what that's what fairy tale that's based on. Right? Yeah. Anyway, yeah, she really is good at fairy tales. <laughs> um, anyway, thank you all. You don't have to leave or anything. You can hang out. But thank you very much for coming to this reading, and we'll have another one in uh, the third Wednesday of the month. So, thanks for coming. Bye. You have been listening to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast, recorded live at the KGB Bar. We hope you enjoyed what you heard, and we thank you for listening. We also wish to thank Gordon Linzer for providing the audio, Sandra Martinez for her audio editing, and Rajan Khanna, that's me, for the introduction and farewell. And always, thanks to our many fans of Fantastic Fiction at KGB for supporting us all these years. See you next month.